We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. edition of the Rotowire NBA podcast. We have Alex Barutha and James Anderson on the line. Guys, we are going back to 2006 today, the Western Conference second round, game seven between the Dallas Mavericks and the San Antonio Spurs. We'll focus mostly on this game seven. It was it was one of the best uh, during that decade and one of the more memorable series uh, really of all time. I mean, there was a list that I found in doing some research by John Holliger in 2011, he ranked this series as the third best NBA playoff series of all time. And Game 7 finished in, in overtime. Uh, the Mavs pulling that out on the road in San Antonio. Uh, a rather improbable victory given the circumstances, although Dallas did go up 3-1 to begin this series. But um, I, I think the one of the things that really jumped out to all of us and something that's kind of forgotten based on how the playoffs work now these were arguably the two best teams in the league. They were certainly the two best teams in the Western Conference, and they did not meet in the Western Conference Finals. They met in the second round because the way that seeding worked back then, the three division winners automatically got the top three seeds. So you had San Antonio uh, at 63-19, and 19, the best record in the West. They're the one. Phoenix, by way of winning the Pacific, 54-28, uh, and 28, they get the two. Denver won 44 games this season. They're 44-38. and 38. They get the three. Dallas finished 60 and 22 and got the four. So uh, Dallas sweeps the Grizzlies in round one. No problem. The Spurs have a little bit of trouble with the Kings in round one. That's kind of the last gasp for, for that Sacramento core. 
Uh, they take the Spurs to six games, but but San Antonio prevails. And then that sets up, like I said, maybe the two best teams in the league playing each other in round two. Yeah, I mean, I think this was such a memorable series because these were the two teams basically of that decade. Like everyone knows the Spurs just went on that crazy streak of, uh, you know, making the playoffs, 50 plus wins, all that stuff. But if you kind of look at Dirk Nowitzki's peak, like he he first started making all-star teams in 01, uh, from 01 basically to, to 2011, the Mavericks won 50 plus games every single year, which is just a crazy feat. Um, you know, to think that like it was basically Dirk and there were other, you know, Steve Nash for, for a minute, but like there was never really like a couple high profile running mates with him the way that Duncan had with Tony Parker and Manu Ginobili. But Dirk's teams just won 50 plus games every single year during his prime. And, it was the Spurs and the Mavs in the regular season that were kind of duking it out every single year during that decade. And obviously the Spurs had much more postseason success, but this was those two teams meeting Dirk right in the middle of his prime Duncan, uh, you know, kind of maybe slightly post prime, but still a, a dominant player and prime Tony Parker, prime Manu Ginobili, uh, just a, a real meeting of, of two kind of titans of the decade and two 60 plus win teams in the second round. I mean, it's, it's tough to get a better second round series than that. Dirk almost went 50, 40, 90 this season. He came up just two percentage points shy in, in field goal percentage, uh, which is crazy to think about. And it was weird. I mean, I'm looking at the, the series stats right now. We'll get into it, but he attempted three, almost three and a half, three pointers a game in the regular season. In the entire seven-game series uh, against the Spurs, he took eight total three-pointers and made one. So the fact that the the Mavericks are still still able to pull the series out is crazy. That was like Avery Johnson's whole thing, right? They they talked about it in the broadcast. Is like he came in and he was going to make Dirk less of an outside, less of a perimeter player, and more of like a, a presence inside and everything and i mean i i think it 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 worked i mean i I don't know what the breakdown is on his three pointers in the nba finals against uh miami but i mean he was just so deadly you know his ability to hit that pretty unguardable fadeaway 16 footer that that's just one of the most unstoppable shots of all time and then he's beating whenever you put like a bigger guy on him he's beating those guys off the dribble and and finishing and getting to the line and stuff so i mean it it wouldn't have been an optimal strategy today but back then when you still you still weren't like stressing spacing really i think it it was a it was a fine strategy at least to get them out of the west Right, and this game kind of followed the theme that a lot of the early to mid-2000s games that we've done has, where, you know, the spacing is just maddening to watch at times. And, you know, we've talked about it with with so many guys that we've discussed doing these rewatches of, you know, how many threes would they be taking if they were playing at their peak in in today's era. And, and, you know, with Dirk, we kind of got to see that later in his career. But, I mean, there are a few times in this game where, 
I'm thinking of one possession where, you know, Tony Parker dumps it into Tim Duncan and then kind of spots up on the wing from 18 feet, pump fakes, dumps it back into Duncan, re-spots up again from like 19 feet and then pulls up for a jump shot just inside the line. Like there, there are a few fast breaks where, you know, you have a two on one and instead of a guy running to the corner or running to the basket, you know, Josh Howard is running to the baseline to take a 12 footer. Um, you know, even the teams like, like Dallas, who was number one in the league this season in offensive rating, you know, that, that was kind of the model offense at the time and, and watching it in retrospect, it's, it's really frustrating. So James, you mentioned at the top that these were kind of the two teams of the decade. And, you know, I think somebody would maybe argue that at least for the first few years of the decade, the Lakers belonged in that conversation, especially if you're talking specifically about the West, I think Phoenix belongs in that discussion as well. But if you look at the breakdown of wins from the 2000 to or 2000, 2001 season through uh, 2009, 2010, the Spurs won more games than any other team in the decade, but they only had 10 more wins than Dallas. It's 573 to 563. The Lakers close behind at 520, Phoenix at 492. So the four winningest teams of the entire decade were all from the Western Conference and six of the top seven we're all from the West. So as, as strong as the West is now, uh, that was still kind of the breakdown back then. So to, to get these two teams facing off against each other in the second round was pretty wild. Um, you know, Dallas, like you mentioned, Alex, they had three guys shooting 40% from three on this team, Dirk, Jason Terry, Josh Howard, even if the volume wasn't there, um, you know, they were spacing the floor at, at a rate that, that other teams weren't. And it was kind of a, a you know, a contrasting matchup where San Antonio I think ranked like ninth or 10th in terms of offensive rating this season, but they had the best defensive rating in the league, unsurprisingly for the third consecutive year. And I think everybody knows how good, you know, that the reputation that they forged as a defensive team, but from the 97 season through the 09 season, these are where the Spurs ranked in the league in terms of defensive rating first, third, first, third, 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 first, first, second, first, third, second, never fell below third at any point during that stretch. That's crazy. Yeah, that's pretty ridiculous. I mean, I mean, who do you think the... Well, like, in my notes here, I had a note on just how good Manu was defensively. Like, I think Manu, part of the reason I wanted to rewatch this game is I think Manu might be one of the players I underrated most at the time uh, because he was, like, a sixth man for a good chunk of his prime and stuff like that. But just, like, in this game alone, he was just such a a pest on defense. He was, he was really elite at reading passing lanes. Uh, Duncan, obviously one of the best defensive players of all time, but I mean, do you think the person was Duncan just that good or was the supporting personnel? I mean, obviously Bruce Bowen gets a lot of credit as, as kind of a lockdown perimeter defender. And he was, he was a pest in this game as well. Like, do you think that, all those defensive ratings lines up with the personnel or were they just coached up to a point that allowed them to exceed the the personnel? That is a good question. I think, I think the personnel on the wing and up front with obviously Tim Duncan being, you know, arguably the best overall defender or at least, you know, kind of interior defender of his era and even Robinson towards the end, still a very good defender, um, but I think being able to put up those kind of defensive ratings when your backcourt is Tony Parker, who at best, you know, kind of survives on the defensive end and Ginobili, you know, he had a couple like, you know, jumping passing lanes, getting steals in this game, but I, I don't know that he was ever considered like a lockdown one-on-one defender. 
Um, so I, I think partially the personnel, you know, having having kind of a specialist in Bruce Bowen who you can just throw on, you know, guys like Kobe Bryant, you know, kind of for throughout this entire decade, that certainly helps having him having Duncan. But I, I mean, I think a, there's a reason that Pop is considered arguably the best the best coach of all time. I mean, I, I think a lot of the credit goes there, too. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's it's one of those things you always hear where, you know, Popovich won't put a guy in the court if he doesn't try on defense or they won't even like get players. And, you know, I mean, he, he and the uh, front office have always worked in tandem as far as getting guys who try defensively or they just won't play for the Spurs. Um, and I think I think that I think that's a, a huge portion of it. And one other aspect that is uh, probably a combination of coaching and uh, front office and like you said, sort of working together is that uh, Tim Duncan still gets labeled as a power forward for you know a good chunk of his career, and the reason being is that they basically played with two centers mm-hmm. for a good chunk of his career. And if you, whenever you're playing with two centers, especially two centers who are positives on defense, you're just inevitably going to have a really good defensive rating, and it's just a matter of can you score enough. To, to for it to matter but i mean if tim duncan's your power your power forward for most of a decade that's uh that's gonna lead to pretty good defenses right well and especially in this era too you know i mean I, I think you could make the case that if you're starting you know tim duncan alongside fabricio oberto or nazi muhammad rasha nesterovich like those those are the centers that they're rolling out in this series like obviously you couldn't get away with that now but the way that the game was played back then it was just so much easier to have two guys sitting back there when you, you didn't have to worry about the four and the five on the other team dragging those guys outside of 15 feet. You know, Eric Dampier is not going to be spotting up from the corner. Sagana Jop isn't going to be pulling up from 18 feet, although although he did hit like an 11-footer in this game. That he did. He did. Mar- Marv like freaked out when that happened. That was, <laughs> that was basically the equivalent of him hitting like a half-court shot. Like I said, I, I think for me, Manu is a guy that uh, was – pretty underrated by myself back then uh there was this probably the best sequence of the entire game came in the second quarter and it was a spurs sequence uh but duncan duncan blocks jason terry going in for a dunk attempt which was inadvisable by jet and then he blocks uh whoever got the rebound i think it's like sack house maybe and so he has two blocks then Manu gets the loose ball, immediately throws a perfect cross-court outlet to Tony Parker, who is able to finish with uh, Dirk trying to chase him down. Um, did, do you guys think that Manu is as underrated as I'm, I'm making him out to be? Like, I, I think he doesn't necessarily get the type of credit that a second or third best player on a dynasty tends to get. I mean, he's, he's going to be a hall of famer or he's a hall of famer and everything. So I mean, not super underrated, but it just seemed to me like in games like this and, and he made a huge three late in this game. I mean, they, they really easily could have won this game and, and he made a lot of plays that, that were, um, you know, really impactful plays in this game. Um, and he just seemed to always be making these winning plays in playoff series and rarely uh, doing anything stupid or or having a, a rough day from the field or anything like that. Do you think I'm uh, overrating how underrated Manu is? I guess 
Well, it's kind of a tough question because Nick and I did a podcast on when ESPN released their like top players of all time rankings. How how high was Manu? Nick was he like fifty or sixty? Fifty eighth. He was fifty eighth, and I think both Nick and I thought that was too high. Um, but I I mean maybe within the era itself he's underrated, or within like the maybe within modern basketball he's underrated by I think most casual fans. Um, I mean I think he get, he definitely gets a bump from being on the Spurs. And I think that kind of takes away from like how individually good he is, is because people just view the Spurs as like this one kind of like unit. Um, but I mean, he was yeah, he was incredible in this series, and when he was in his prime, he was like extremely athletic, um, he, like blowing by people and everything like that. He's kind of like the anti Carl Malone, where he didn't like, he didn't play enough minutes to really compile any kind of crazy career totals or anything like that and he didn't even play enough minutes in like his best seasons to be thought of as like an all-nba guy but when he did play he was always one of the best players on the court so i feel like the the spurs deserve a lot of credit for how they managed his minutes over his kind of extending his career like if they just played him 36 minutes a game every season he probably you know fizzles out of the league three or four years before he did, but the fact that they weren't really treating him like that superstar from a minute standpoint is, is probably what, where the sort of disconnect comes in. But I mean, 58 overall, I mean, that's, that's a lot of respect. I don't think that's a underrating him at all. I just sort of think of, um, you know, just kind of the players who I would take peak modern Ginobili in like a playoff game over lots of guys that I think, casual fans probably think are, are better players. Yeah, I think you guys made most of the points that I was going to make. And I, I think the the key point is that among experts, you know, like, like you, if you're referencing that ESPN top 74, I think he's either properly rated or slightly overrated. I mean, some of the guys that are around him in the rankings, uh, Bob McAdoo is 59. Robert Parrish is 61. Dennis Rodman is 62. Alonzo Mourning, 63. Pau Gasol, 65. If you go a little bit below him, you have Clyde Drexler at 57, Ray Allen at 56, Vince Carter at 55, Paul Pierce at 54. So he's kind of, you know, I think I think most people, most casual fans would say, you know, the, the name Paul Pierce, the name Vince Carter, the name Ray Allen. Oh, of course, those guys were much better than Manu Ginobili. All those guys have six, seven, eight all-star bids to their name. But you know, I, I think the the big thing, and you made this point, James, the numbers just don't jump out. You know, if if you're looking at Manu Ginobili's basketball reference page, whether it's now or in 20 years, and you're trying to contextualize it, you'll look at it and say, okay, this guy made two All Star games. He did make two All Third Team All NBAs, which which is noteworthy, um, but he never averaged more than 19 and a half points in any season, and that was by far his highest scoring season. Like after that, he had one season where he averaged 17. He was mostly in that like 12 to 16 range. So the numbers are never going to jump off the page. And I think as we get further and further away from his career and people actually remembering how good he was in these very specific clutch situations, I think he could very well become underrated. Um, But if you look at like he's an interesting guy, because in this era, most superstars were playing 36 minutes, if not more per game. Like Tim Duncan was right around 36 this season, 05, 06. So you can kind of look at 
Ginobili's per 36 numbers, and that'll basically give you what he would have averaged, you know, had he been playing as much as some of his peers at the position. And then at that point, it becomes quite a bit more impressive, you know, from like 06 through 2011, he's given you 22 points, five and a half assists, five rebounds, two steals, 45% from the field, 38% from three. You know, if, if those were the actual numbers he was putting up, if he was playing 36, 37, 38 minutes a night, I think he's maybe like a five or a six time all-star instead of a two time all-star. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I mean, I, I understand why guys like Paul Pierce and Vince Carter are ahead of him, Mm -hmm. but I wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't take prime Paul Pierce or prime Vince Carter over prime Manu in a playoff series. But there, I mean, there's something to be said for just being there year after year and being able to log those, those heavy minutes totals and, Manu Ginobili maybe wouldn't have been able to accomplish in the regular season what Paul Pierce was able to accomplish on teams where he was the go-to guy and had to play like 37, 38 minutes a night. So it's tough to kind of just put him over a guy like that when he never actually had to put in that amount of work. But um, yeah, I think it's just a, it's a tough case because it's, it's tough to know how much to value the quantity versus the quality. Do you think 58 is like about right for Ginobili? I know you kind of made the case for why you could go back and forth with some of the other shooting guards, uh, you know, of his era. But do you think that's too high, too low? Well, when you listed the guys behind him, I thought it was perfect because I thought he should have been ahead of all the guys you had behind him. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think like you compare him to like Dennis Rodman, kind of similar from a standpoint of the stats don't, jump off the page other than the the rebounds in the block the rebounds jump off the page. right yeah but um another guy like dennis rodman doesn't make the hall of fame if his whole career he's on mediocre teams and he probably doesn't even make the hall of fame if he never goes to chicago like if he just goes from like the spurs to just some random team like the all the titles is what gets rodman into the hall of fame and all the titles is what gets Manu into the Hall of Fame. And I think I would take I would take the player that can that can go score against the very best in crunch time and make plays on the defensive end over just the, the rebounder uh, defensive specialist that Rodman was and uh, the guys you listed after him as well. Like I, I don't think I would make a case that any of them are better than Manu. There might be guys further down that I would take over Manu, but um, I mean, I think Manu should have been high. Like Vince Carter, I think, got way too much credit on those those rankings. But um, the rest of those guys, I think, deserve to be ahead of Manu. Probably the best argument for Manu is, like, when you look at his prime, uh, but, like, in the playoffs, because from 04, basically from the 05 playoffs through the 2011 playoffs, he was seeing 33 minutes a game. So his minutes were increasing in the playoffs against harder competition. And he was still averaging 19 points on 13 shots and, you know, four assists with like two and a half turnovers. And his numbers actually arguably got better in more minutes against harder competition in the playoffs. He didn't win a ring any of those years, but I mean, he obviously, you know, the continued to get the, uh, he played 20 playoff games in, in two of those years. He's somebody too, that I think gets, gets the benefit of the doubt. Uh, having never actually been the number one or arguably even the number two guy on, you know, a great team. I think 
there was always a belief that like, yeah, he could do it, but we never got to see it. And there was a chance that like, let's say in 2008, he leaves to go sign with the, you know, the Hornets and, you know, is, is like a 24 points per game guy on like a 31 win team. I think that like, even though his numbers would like pound for pound be better, I think it would like st- sticking with the Spurs and winning four titles did a lot more for his legacy, even if his numbers were 70% of what they could have been. Like that did more for his legacy than being the number one guy on a average to below average team would have ever done. Right. Like he could have, like if Duncan got hurt and missed an entire season, kind of like, you know, this is like the Scotty Pippen and MJ thing. You know, MJ left. You got to see how good Scotty Pippen was. If Duncan would have gotten hurt for a whole year or something like that. Manu could have been the number one guy. And I think that would have been interesting, but I, I agree with you overall. Support for this podcast comes from U.S. Bank. If you're looking for a credit card that fits your lifestyle, look no further. U.S. Bank has credit cards that make every day rewarding, no matter what you're into. Feeling hungry? Check out the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Earn four times points on takeout, food delivery, and dining. And get two times points at gas stations, grocery stores, and on streaming. That'll keep your wallet and your mouth full. Big spender? The U.S. Bank Visa Platinum Card has a low intro APR for large purchases or balance transfers. And you call the shots with the U.S. Bank Cash Plus Visa Signature Card. Choose two categories each quarter. Earn 5% back on your first $2,000 of eligible purchases from those categories. So don't just get a credit card. Get the right card to make every day more rewarding. Cash back, merchandise, travel rewards, and low intro APRs are waiting. Learn more at usbank.com slash credit card. The creditor and issuer of these cards is U.S. Bank National Association, pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc., and the cards are available to United States residents only. Some restrictions may apply. Member FDIC. What do you guys think about Tony Parker? He's the guy I had in my notes to kind of have this same conversation, and he's still pretty young at this point. You know, he came a little bit later, uh, joined the Spurs in, in 01, 02, and you know, essentially was, was their starting point guard right from the jump, but... Uh, you know, he's a guy who made three straight all-star games from 2012 to 14. So his peak was a little bit later than Duncan and Ginobili's during this series. Parker is only 23 years old, but he is in his fifth NBA season. Going back to that ESPN list, Tony Parker comes in at number 70. So he is five spots behind Pau Gasol. He's right behind Bernard King. Um, he's a couple spots ahead of Damian Lillard, who, you know, kind of a tough case because he's still playing and still in his prime Dikembe Mutombo's at 73. Um, so, you know, Tony Parker kind of snuck in as one of the five last players on that top 74 list. I, I remember talking about him briefly on the podcast, Alex, and I don't know if I would have Tony Parker on, on my top 74, uh, but I do tend to value like individual performance and stats more than I do a resume that includes multiple titles. Uh, I mean, he was never really an inefficient scorer. Like he just he 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 was able to score, you know, in in his prime throughout the playoffs, he was basically 19 points a game, but it took him 16 shots, which is like passably efficient. Mm-hmm. And for him, he was just so good at taking care of the ball. You know, his assist to turnover ratio was always good. Um, you know, he he was kind of like a, I don't know. I mean, he could get hot, which is uh, and and kind of take over a game, but I don't know. I just he had the numbers to make those all-star games. It's not like he wasn't putting up numbers. And I, I think he's, you know, he was really good. Um, I don't know. I, he is a really interesting case because he was, he was obviously really good, but like in 
if he played today, people would probably knock his efficiency in some years, um, in the playoffs at least. But his regular season numbers were fantastic. Yeah, I I think he definitely benefited from being on all those high 50s, low 60s win teams when it came to the accolades. Uh, but I I don't necessarily want to fault him for that. I mean, I think he just... His game wouldn't have translated... Like, I think out of Duncan and Ginobili and, Par- and Parker, Parker's game obviously translates the worst uh, in the modern era because he just couldn't have shot the ball well enough from distance to stack up against the best point guards in the league. But I don't really want to hold that against him either because um, it wasn't this era. And I just think he was... He really benefited from being coached by Pop, probably more so than Manu or Tim Duncan. Like, I, I think... Tony Parker's career could have gone many different ways and usually for the worse if he had not come up with the Spurs. So I probably give the Spurs more credit for Tony Parker's success than I do with Manu and and Duncan. But I mean, I think he should have been on that list, but I think they put him properly low on it. If you look at similarity scores on basketball reference that that takes into account win shares and just kind of projects out based on how many how many years you played, you know, similar uh, players who had trajectories based on their, their win shares. He's remarkably similar to Jason Terry of all people. And Jason Terry's best win share season was better than Tony Parker's best by a pretty big margin by 1.2 win shares. And for the rest of their career, it's pretty close. You know, Parker has a little bit more longevity, but um, I think just kind of an interesting illustration of like how two players who maybe like ability wise are fairly similar um, how the environment that that Tony Parker ended up in, and and really the same conversation you know can be said for Ginobili. Like those guys, based on the the limitation that they had in their game, I, I think were able to be like perfectly positioned to minimize those with the Spurs. Yeah, I mean the the only limitation for Ginobili was just the workload. Right. I think I think he would have been a a dominant player on a permanent basis in any on any on any team, but on any team, he might've just been the best player and it would have been weird to only play him 28 minutes. So with him being the second or third best player on a team that was going to win 55 games with him or without him, that allowed them to, to rest him uh, to the extent that he needed. All right. I want to talk about another Spurs player uh, and a guy who the previous season in 04, 05 uh, finished up his tenure in Dallas. So Michael Finley, joins the Spurs for the 2005-2006 season. He's technically amnestied by the Mavericks for, for money reasons, obviously. I, I think you know they, they certainly wanted to keep him around, but based on the size of his contract, couldn't do it. So based on what I read around that time, he was choosing between the Spurs, the Heat, the Suns. Apparently, he's really close with Steve Nash. Michael Finley began his career in Phoenix. Uh, the Pistons and the Timberwolves. So... Uh, an ESPN article from, uh, I guess, what would have been the summer of 2005 noted that Michael Finley was like holed up in Chicago. He's from that area and was taking meetings in Chicago. And KG, Amari Stoudemire, and Pat Riley all separately flew into Chicago just to meet with Michael Finley to try to convince him to come to their teams. Michael <laughs> Finley. This is the NBA in 2005. I I remember that. I mean, that, that was, uh, I don't remember the, those three teams courting him to that extent. But I remember the the fact that he 
like had been a, a longtime Maverick, mm-hmm. and that was like a big deal in this playoff series. Like he, I, I guess I didn't realize he'd been amnestied, but I remember it sort of being framed as he's leaving the Mavericks to try to chase a ring with like another team, and he picked the Spurs because he thought they'd give him the best chance to to get a ring. And then it's just kind of ironic that he loses to the Mavericks in this series. But I mean, he was a, he was a good, he's a guy that would have started on any of those teams. And as you remember uh, from when we did that Timberwolves Kings game, uh, the, the Timberwolves could have certainly used Michael. <laughs> <laughs> they could, they could have used literally anybody actually. They could have used Bucci Norris at, in that game. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, San Antonio had won the title in 05, so it made sense. Uh, you know, the, the Spurs dynasty was, you know, up and running at this point, but they lose in 06, uh, they end up winning in 07. So Finley does get his title in San Antonio. Um, but yeah, like you said, it, it was, you can see there's a lot of fans courtside in this game seven wearing Michael Finley jerseys. So I, I do, I don't know if that was like a, a partially like a taunt toward Dallas, like, haha, we have Michael Finley now, but he, he signs in San Antonio in only plays 26 minutes a game off the bench. He's a full-time starter in Dallas, you know, the previous like seven or eight years. And he only averages 10 points per game. So it it seems like based, based only on the numbers, like the fanfare maybe exceeded the actual production of Michael Finley. But I wanted to talk about kind of his prime years. And, you know, I mentioned this, looking at the similarity scores, he has like shockingly similar career averages to Joe Johnson, especially during their prime years. Like I I looked at their first 12 years using basketball references, player comparison feature, and the numbers are are almost identical in every single category. And Joe Johnson is what, like a nine time all-star and Michael Finley is a two time all-star. So I I think he's somebody that in a lot of ways kind of gets lost to history, but had he maybe played out his career in the Eastern conference, you know, if him and Joe Johnson switch spots, I, I think they're probably re- remembered as a lot more similar players. Whereas now I think just about anybody would say Joe Johnson was much better than Michael Finley, just based on the reputation. I'm on Joe Johnson's basketball reference page and shocked to remember that he made the all-star game as a 32 year old in Brooklyn. Oh yeah. Averaging 16 points, three rebounds and three assists. So how, how many total all-stars does he have? <clears throat> Seven. Seven. Okay, I gave, gave him two. One all, one all NBA. Uh, Joe Johnson, yeah, seven time All Star, one time All NBA selection. Okay. Well, yeah, I'm, Finley, I'm always, I'm always kind of bummed about the what happened in Phoenix with Joe Johnson. Like, right. I wish he'd never gotten to the to the Eastern Conference because those Suns teams could have really used prime Joe Johnson, uh, but they. Uh, basically gave him away. I mean, I, I I didn't think of Joe Johnson when we were talking about Michael Finley before you mentioned him, Nick, but I mean, I think they had very, very similar games. So that's that's a really good call on those similarity scores. I mean, just kind of tier, tier below all-star level uh, mm-hmm. in theory, but very good starters, you know, second or third best player on a playoff team type of guys during their prime. I think that, that that's a good call. Yeah, I mean, the major knock on Finley is obviously that cartwheel dunk at the dunk contest <laughs> yeah, yeah. in, like, I don't know what yeah. year that was, 97 or 98. Uh, so that's certainly held against him. And his four best seasons, he played 41.4 minutes, 41 minutes, 42.2 minutes, 42 minutes. He led the league in minutes three of those four years. 
So he was giving you 23, 6, and 5, but you know he's basically playing the entire game every single night. And he played 82 games all three of the years that he led the league in, in minutes per game. I mean, his best overall season, he was 22.6 points, 6 rebounds, 5.5 assists, 1.3 steals, 46 from the field, 40 from 3, 82 from the line. I mean, that's at the, at the time, that's you know right below, you know, you had Kobe and Iverson and you know Vince Carter and and you know T Mac were probably the premier shooting guards at that time. But I, Finley was probably right on that tier too. Yeah, that season is just as good as maybe better than any Joe Johnson season. Yeah, yeah. this could be its own separate podcast. Right. <laughs> uh, do you guys have any notes from the presentation of the game before we we actually dive into the game itself? I mean, I thought Steve Kerr was was great. Um, I thought this isn't necessarily presentation, but not necessarily related to the play on the court. But uh, young Mark Cuban seemed like an even bigger wild card back then than he does now. Like mm-hmm. talking all kinds of trash about San Antonio, the city, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> um, making fun of how dirty their water was. I mean, very... <laughs> Very, um, he, he was quite an instigator and, and still is to some extent, but th- this was when he was young and really feeling himself. Yeah. He always had like that, like sinister look on his face back then. And I think it's kind of cooled off a little bit. Like basically once they won the title in 11, it seems like that's when things shifted, but like, he was as much a part of the game as anybody during this era of Mavs basketball. I have very few notes on the presentation. We had we had Marv Albert, Steve Kerr, like you said, and then Cheryl Miller uh, was the the sideline reporter. And the way that this one was cut up, it was one of the NBA TV hardwood classics telecasts. So it was it was pretty choppy. You know, they they sliced off like most of the first quarter. It went from like ten minutes left on the clock to like two minutes. Um, so we didn't get to see a lot of the like potential comedy sections of the telecast. But there were a couple times where you could hear Game Ops playing D4L Laffy Taffy during play which i would imagine would have been incredibly distracting for for the players and then the only other note i have is avery johnson who is in his first full season coaching the mavs he had taken over midway through the previous year he finished the the 0405 season on a 16 and 2 run uh, and then kept the job this season he's going with the like mustard brown shirt with the matching mustard brown tie very the strong white shirt yeah white right shirt. it was a little darker but yes. basically that yeah yeah, the fashion, the fashion uh, on the sidelines from this era is very, yeah, it's very like J.C. Penney's, like Van Heusen, Dwight Schrute, like just very, very forgettable. Yeah, Tim Duncan was very much in his element. I mean, this was probably right around the time of like peak dress code, right? Maybe a couple of years after. <laughs> yeah, um, I think so. Yeah, I want to say that was kind of right around like 01, 02 when, when Stern kind of started to crack down on Iverson. Never really was an issue for for Duncan or anyone on the Spurs, or really the Mavs for that matter. <laughs> anyway, so the game itself, this I mean, Dallas jumps out to a huge lead. They're leading by as much as 20 uh, with three minutes left in the first half. It was something like, I think, 58 to 38. Uh, Dallas is 15 of 18 from the field in the first quarter. Uh, of course, that would even out later on but they get off at this you know really really hot start probably should have led by more honestly based on how they were shooting the ball um keith van horn makes an appearance 
for Dallas in this oh, yeah. game. Airballs a three, like, horrifically on his first shot attempt. Ends up hitting another one from the corner later on. Uh, but everything's clicking for Dallas early on. And then once we get into the third quarter, you know, San Antonio just kind of gradually starts chipping away at that lead and eventually makes it, you know, obviously a close enough game that it ends up going to overtime. I do want to talk about Van Horn quick, just since you mentioned him. Oh, um, please. I thought it was... And, you know, they they don't win this game in overtime. The, the Mavs don't win this game in overtime. It doesn't even probably go to an overtime if Van Horn didn't make a couple threes. Uh, I think it was maybe in the third quarter. But how how crazy is it for a guy that made, like, two very key threes to have had a air ball that was so bad <laughs> earlier in that game from three when he was wide open, like Dirk, Dirk's basically getting like triple teamed. He, he sucks in all the defenders on this drive, finds Van Horn as wide open as you can possibly be in the corner. And he airballs it short and wide. And then he comes back to hit two huge threes later in the game. I just, that that's a different era of the NBA when, when we're talking about a three point shooter, like completely airballing an uncontested corner three yet still being like a clear green light guy uh, later on in that game. When he, when he checked in, uh, I mean the quality on the YouTube video that we watched is not great. When he checked in and was running around, I was like, is that Ryan Anderson out there? And then he airballed the three. I was like, Oh, maybe it is. It could be Ryan Anderson. Could be Ryan Anderson out there. That that airball was was atrocious. I mean, I can understand like game seven jitters coming in off the bench to like mm-hmm. stand in the corner and launch one. And I don't know about you guys, but we, we all play basketball. I am always afraid of like hitting the side of the backboard on those. So if I miss, sure. it's always like way off to the way off to sure. the like front of the rim. I'm gonna assume I that's just, what happened there. I can't picture. I I those are all good points. Game seven jitters. I just can't picture someone like, uh, you know, Kyle Kuzma or Marvin Williams or just some random stretch big in today's game just (laughs) airballing a wide open corner three like that and still being one of the clear uh, floor stretchers like the rest of the game. I disagree. I could totally see Kyle Kuzma doing that. Yeah, that might have been a bad example. That might have been a bad example. So I, if you, before I looked at this just now, I would have guessed that Keith Van Horn was probably 37 years old at this point. This was his last ever uh, season in the NBA. So, you know, he played two more series and then was done forever at age 30. I had no idea he was out of the league that early. He's 30 years old this game. He's still playing 20, 20 minutes a game also. It's not like he was playing like 12 minutes a game. Yeah, I mean, obviously his career, you know, was kind of a gradual downslope as soon as he left New Jersey. But, you know, injuries were, were an issue. But I, I, I thought he had played later than 30. And interesting that he, uh, in his third to last playoff series, is on the team that beats prime Tim Duncan when and he was the number one pick and he was the number two pick in 97 yep finally settled that debate (laughs) um speaking of Tim Duncan one one of the things I have in my notes I think this is the point in his career that Tim Duncan looked the most like a Tim Duncan like he's going with just like the 
the most like generic white guy haircut ever. Like he has, he has this like the perfectly like sports clip sideburns, perfectly leveled off at the ear. Um, just the goatee is fully in there. Like he, he started to look a little cooler. I thought later in his career when he added the gray and had the beard, but he just looks so much like someone named Tim Duncan. Like, I, I don't know if he could have been named anything else. Did that cross your mind at all? <laughs> he is uh, incredibly generic. Uh, like I his think name, he could not, his name could not be like DeMarcus cousins. Right. <laughs> right. So, so one thing that jumped out to me is this was the first year of his career that he averaged below 20 points a game. Mm-hmm. And he was playing like almost 35 minutes a game. Is that, do we think he just like the Spurs were like, part of me was thinking like maybe the Spurs just blew everyone out a ton. And like, so the, but I mean, he was playing the minutes. It's just kind of weird for a guy that was, um, I mean, he's still in his prime theoretically. Right. Uh maybe slightly post-prime, but mm-hmm. just kind of weird that he, he only averaged 18.6 points a game during the regular season this year. I had basically the same thing in my notes, James. He only had two 30-point games all season in 80 regular season games, which, you know, it's, he's not a guy that was routinely giving you 38 and 12 or anything, but in 20 years, will people look at Tim Duncan's numbers and think this guy was way overrated? Because the numbers themselves aren't that impressive. You know, I, I think anybody who watched Tim Duncan knows where his value lies. I, I, I consider him a top 10 guy. It's pretty unassailable. But, you know, he, he had one season where he averaged 25 and a half points per game. Other than that, never really got over the 23 per game range. Um, you know, the blocks numbers were always good, but never a guy who spaced the floor. Not a great free throw shooter. You know, OK for a big man, but career below 70 percent. Um, and like you said, by this point in his career, he's only 29, but you know, he, he averages exactly 20 points per game the next year, but the rest of his career, you know, it's not quite where he was for that, like immaculate three year stretch because you know, he's kind of rare in that. I would I'd say his first five years were probably his best years as an NBA player. Well, I mean, he was a four year player in college, obviously. Right. So, um, rookie year, he's 21. I mean, do we all agree that if the Spurs, like in this 05-06 season, if they had given him like five or six more shots per game, do we agree that he would have, like his efficiency would have remained about the same and he would have been averaging in the mid-20s? Like, is it just a function of the Spurs offense at this specific time was just so so much about um, the system and moving the ball and finding open guys rather than just feeding Duncan in the post. But when you see him in the playoffs, like it's, he's just automatic 30 plus points in any type of close playoff game. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't want to really ding him for his regular season points per game. If they weren't even really trying to get him that, that many points, you know? Yeah, yeah, I think that's totally fair. And it's worth noting, too, that his three best game scores and three highest scoring games of the entire season came in this Dallas series. So and that was not unique. You know, that was something it seemed like every year uh, he would kind of be going at like 80, 90 percent in the regular season and then would kind of get to another level in the playoffs. 
Yeah, that's that's the point I was going to make. I mean, if you look at his playoff numbers from like his first into his last ring, which are basically only excluding three years of his career, but you know he's 21 points a game on 50% shooting, 12 rebounds, you know, basically a combined three blocks and steals, also three assists, pretty minimal turnovers considering how much he had the ball. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's just part of the Spurs system where you look at, but I mean, both Duncan and Manu. As great as we acknowledge that they are, the Spurs, I think in the regular season, Popovich's game plan is just make sure everyone's involved, make sure everyone's happy, make sure everyone understands uh, the schemes. And then in the playoffs, when you need someone like Duncan or you need someone like Manu to to pop off, then they can and they do. How close is Duncan versus KG versus Dirk for you guys if you're doing all time rankings? How close is it? I mean, for me, it's. Cl- uh, I, well, I think it's what's clearly, the order and like how big of a gap is there between each guy for you? I mean, I think it's clearly Duncan, KG, and then Dirk. Um, just because I would, I value the two-way ability of Duncan and KG. I'm gonna give the nod to Duncan for all the titles and all the playoff success. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't. I mean, it's. I think the gap. I don't know. That's tough. I. I all I know is that I'm I, I'm like I, I very strongly feel that that's the order. I think Duncan and KG is is really close. I I would have Duncan ahead of him, but I think I think I mentioned this on the pod we did with the KG MVP season. I mean, it you couldn't have a more stark contrast in factors outside of a player's control than Duncan's landing spot with the Spurs and KG's landing spot with the Timberwolves. Like if you, if you swap those two guys and just say, Duncan, you get drafted by the Timberwolves, KG, you get drafted by the Spurs. I don't think the Spurs win fewer titles necessarily. I, I just, they were different players. I I think Duncan, I'll give him a slight edge, uh, I think he was he was tougher to guard uh, when he was on offense because he had a better uh, post game. But I think I mean KG. I would say peak KG was the better defender than peak Duncan, and uh, peak KG was a bit more versatile on offense and would have fit perfectly in pretty much any era. Whereas Duncan. Um, was a bit more of like kind of a throwback. Uh, I think Dirk is is third, but like I I think Dirk versus Kobe is really close. Like I I don't I think I take KG and Duncan over Kobe, and I think Dirk and Kobe like I I think that's extremely close to me. I think like what we talked about with um, the fact that he was basically the only star on the majority of those Mavs teams in that 10 year run. And they were just always not even like low fifties. Like there were seasons in the sixties, there were seasons in the high fifties. And it's, it's basically just based on the fact that prime dirt gave you a top five offense, no matter what. And I think that there are just some tough breaks for him in the postseason that, uh, the kind of prevented him from putting the type of, playoff success together to kind of stack up with some of those guys from a narrative standpoint. But 
Um, I mean, in this season, this very season, this 05-06 season, I think a lot of people would tell you the Mavs should have won that finals against the Heat, and the refs uh, had a pretty big part to play in in the outcome of that series. I mean, there's the We Believe Warriors knocking out Dirk's MVP season. Mm-hmm. Mavs team that that could have been a, a finals contender. Like there's just a lot of unfortunate playoff losses for Dirk that um, some of those other guys don't necessarily have on their resume. Uh, but I think just his his dominance on offense in this era. Like how many guys in the last thirty years have been just automatically double teamed from like sixteen feet out, like like Dirk was in this series. I mean, it's, it's, it's basically like maybe, maybe Kevin Durant or maybe like Kawhi Leonard in a playoff series or something like that. I mean, you just don't see guys getting double teamed in that area of the court, the way that the prime Dirk was. So I, I think he's third, but I think he's um, not as far behind those guys, maybe as, as some other people would think. I kind of forgot about Dirk as a drive and kick guy, which there's a ton of, in in this game i mean dallas didn't really have like a true penetrating point guard you know you have a young devin harris who really didn't do much in this game you have jason terry who's a little bit more perimeter oriented but dirk is doing a lot with jab steps pump fakes um you know using that to kind of get a step on guys who are quicker than him and then as you mentioned earlier james you know you have two sometimes three spurs collapsing on him whether it's around the elbow or closer to the basket and you know, he's, he's doing a great job of kind of spreading everything around. And, you know, you never really think of Dirk as a passer, but the way that, that this offense operated with kind of the lack of overall playmakers, he, he had to do a lot more of that, I think, than he gets credit for. I also think he was underrated as a rebounder. Um, oh, yeah. Not, not a big-time volume guy in the regular season, uh, but when the minutes went up, I mean, he was up, he was double digit rebounds per game in the playoffs from Oh one through Oh nine. Just not, I mean, he, he definitely didn't, I mean, I think it would be maybe he was a average defensive player. I don't, I wouldn't call him a, like a sieve or anything, but I mean, he wasn't, wasn't impacting the game a ton on defense, but uh, not just a score. I mean, he, he was a better rebounder than guys like Kevin Durant. And, uh, and yeah, like you said, I mean, who knows what his game would have looked like if he'd come up at a different time, just given how good of a three-point shooter he was. But mm. actually, I, I kind of think he came up at the perfect time because he was still encouraged to do that stuff in the mid-range that he was so good at. And that, I mean, when you get into a postseason series and you're late in the game and it's, and it's close, like just having a guy that can score in the half court with the efficiency that the prime dirt could was just so, so tough to beat. So you mentioned a little bit ago, James, like how good those Mavs teams were basically for the entire decade. So starting in 2000 through the end of the 10, 11 season, when, when they eventually did beat Miami in the finals, here's Dallas's win totals. 53, 57, 60, 52, 58, 60, 67, 51, 50, 55, 57. I mean, that that's right up there with San Antonio. Like we said, better than LA, better than Phoenix. They were, they were, you know, bar none, the second best regular season team in the NBA for an 11 year stretch without ever really having a true second star 
next to Dirk. My question is, if he doesn't win it in 11, you know, if things go as expected and Miami closes out that series and LeBron doesn't, you know, turn into, I don't know, Ronnie Brewer 2.0, like how, I know this question has been asked a lot, but like, and it's, it's hard to imagine it not happening, but like how much, you know, if you're doing that top 74, like is Dirk 10 spots lower if he doesn't win that title in 11? Yeah. At least probably, uh, probably unfairly so. But I think, I think if you played out Dirk's career, you know, ten times, hundred times, whatever, I just think it's it would be very rare for him to emerge with zero titles. Like I think there were other ti- other years where they probably should have won the title and didn't, and so it was kind of like a kind of like a makeup win against the heat like i just think you know if you if you want to play like say like what where is he without that title against the heat well like where is he if he wins the title this year against the heat right maybe he gets to another finals all of a sudden he's the clear by far best player on two title teams like six years apart i mean that maybe he's thought of more as like a, a fringe top 10 guy at that mm-hmm. point so i mean i think you're absolutely right i mean he's probably down with like barkley and guys like that on on these all-time lists if he doesn't have a title but i just think it would have been like if you take away this year's title like i feel like he he would have gotten one a little bit earlier as well i i agree with that but i think part of the reason that the one in 2011 meant so much was because the ones that they lost were kind of viewed as his fault you know, I think 06, maybe the refs took more of the brunt of it than Dirk did. But to come back that next season, win MVP, win 67 games, have the best season in franchise history by far, and then lose in round one, and then lose in round one again the next year, and then lose in round two, and then lose in round one again. Like, I think before they won it in 11, and even going into that season, like, you know, by that point, Dirk is in his low 30s, and it's looking like it, it's probably never going to happen. And especially with how strong that Miami team was. I mean, no one was giving them much of a shot going into that series. I I think it meant so much because, you know, you can look at other guys who haven't won, you know, like a Barkley, like a Nash. You never really hear anyone say like Steve Nash is a choker for not winning a title. Like people were saying that about Dirk. Like I think for his legacy, he really needed to win one. Whereas other stars who haven't won, you know, haven't necessarily taken like the full blame for it. Like Dirk did. And that's part of the reason or part of the, the repercussions, I guess, of being the only star on those teams for so long. Yeah, I mean, nowadays it it seems like having Dirk be the clear-cut best player on the team basically by himself, like, would not... No one would blame him for, you know, not having more than one title. Mm-hmm. Um, just because of the way stars are paired up these days. It's almost so like that, a double... Go ahead. It's like a double-edged sword where he was only really viewed as that choker because of how good his teams were in the regular season. Right, exactly. If that Mavericks team wins 52 games instead of 67 and loses in round one, it's not as big of a deal. Right. And it, I mean, who who would we say are like the four best players he played with during that decade run? I mean, like Nash and Josh Howard and Jason Terry and some other guy. I don't, I don't know. I mean, he was like these were not good supporting casts. Like, Well, I mean, Sagata Jop was second in block percentage <laughs> this season. He was sixth yeah. in defensive box plus minus. But yeah, yeah I mean, I it, it drops off considerably. 
<laughs> you could argue Tyson Chandler maybe at the end, yeah. but I mean that's who we're talking about here. Like Tyson Chandler is a guy. I mean, has he even made an All Star game? One or two? You know, like the best players that he ever played with were like borderline All Stars. We should mention the game itself goes into overtime. Um, you know, a, a pretty thrilling you know final like 30 seconds in regulation. Uh, Spurs are down three, I believe. Um, oh no, excuse me, the game was tied. Tony Parker has a one-on-one fast break with Dirk back, and Dirk has a couple steps on him. Is going to be able to be in in position to to contest the layup, but Tony Parker ends up backing it out. And I, you know, watching it live, I'm thinking like, go at him. It's it's Dirk Nowitzki. Like you're probably going to draw a foul if nothing else. Ends up being the right decision. Parker backs it out. They they run offense. Get Manu Ginobili a wide open three on the wing. That puts San Antonio up three uh, with a, a little over 25 seconds left. On the other end. Dirk comes down, gets an and one layup. I, I believe the foul was on Ginobili with about 20 seconds left, hits the free throw to tie the game. Uh, and then the Spurs, not really able to get a great look at the end of regulation. Ginobili comes flying in, misses a wild layup. Duncan gets the rebound from like two feet away. And I don't know if he was just off balance or, or didn't catch it right, but it, it, it was you know well contested, I guess, by Dallas. But it, it watching it in real time kind of felt like a, like a weak putback attempt by Duncan that you know, one that he would probably tell you he would normally normally make or at least get up on the rim. Yeah, just kind of a weird ending where, I, I mean, they have been hounding Duncan all game. I mean, he shot 23 free throws in this game. Mm-hmm. Like, they double-teamed him basically the entirety of the first half. They were not going to let him get anything easy inside. So, I mean, maybe it's just a function of him expecting more, you know, resistance or being you know, kind of like worried there's someone behind him or I'm, I'm not really sure, but yeah, I agree where it's, that's a shot that he's going to make. It, it feels like, like, you know, like 95 times out of a hundred. Yeah. And in overtime, Duncan really struggled. He goes one of seven from the field. Uh, and it's basically all Mavs from the start of overtime through the end. Um, you know, they get to the line eight times in the overtime period. And uh, it really wasn't all that close, you know, after the first minute or two of overtime, but you know, Duncan struggles at the end of this game. It kind of reminded me of that that Heat series in 2013, where you know there's that one that one play, you know, where he he misses that like three footer over Shane Battier, and yeah. you can tell he just you know he claps his hands and knows you know 99 out of 100 times he makes that. Um, and yeah, seeing him kind of miss a, a few easy putbacks at the end of this game just just conjured up memories of that series. All right, what else yeah. do you guys have? We can empty him out. I mean, at one point. I think Jop makes a defensive play, and one of the announcers says, "You know, Desanya Jop, remember the name," uh, which I found like hilarious. Uh, well, yeah, Steve Kerr was making a big point uh, late in that game about how Tagana Jop was just swallowing up Dirk, uh, even though I, I'm with you, Nick. I mean, I, I definitely had visions like flashbacks to that heat, that miss that he had in that that 13 series. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I mean, they if they if if Sagata Jap had not been like semi serviceable after uh, Dampier fouls out, they don't win the game probably. But I mean, like Tim Duncan's probably scoring over Keith Van Horn in these situations. I'm guessing. I think that's fair to say. Yes, I I will say I in 100 percent honesty, I came away pretty impressed with Sagata Jap. Like I remembered <laughs> him as more of a joke than. 
Like he gave them good minutes. He's a huge he body. He's fairly athletic back then. He got he got some most improved player votes this season. Yeah, I saw you ran a uh, fun little basketball reference search on on him uh, and his offensive prowess. I did, yeah. So I tweeted this out, but I, I was looking at his basketball reference page, and they have a nice little table at the bottom of every player page where you can see their their season high year by year in each category. He never scored more than 10 points in any of his 601 regular season NBA games. He did have an 11-point eruption uh, in the 07 playoffs. but And he only got to 10 points four times. So in 597 of 601 NBA games, he scored nine or fewer points. He just loved getting his teammates involved. Incredibly impressive. Like, that's really, really hard to do. And I, I looked at, you know, like the, the next most uh, consecutive games without scoring 10 points. And it's it's really not close. Like nobody's ever, ever going to come close to to breaking this record. So Jop went 601 straight games with 10 or fewer points. The next highest is 352. Like he's almost doubling him up. Who is the second guy? Uh, someone that I'd never heard of by the name oh. of Charles Jones. Uh, of course, Charles um, Jones. But yeah, like the rest of that list was like Jason Collins, check, Manute Bowl. Okay. Uh, Francisco Elson was on there, Joel Anthony, like basically the guys you would expect, but, um, quite a feat, you know, when you're that tall and like there were, I looked like there were games where he was playing like upwards of 35 minutes. Like it's just hard once in your NBA career to not luck your way into even 11 points or say 12 points, (laughs) maybe even 13. Yeah. Hell why not? But yeah, when he hits that like 11 foot baseline jumper, you know, there's kind of like, you can kind of feel like everybody gasping in the arena and, uh, you know, Marv just just yells, when it's your night, it's your night. <laughs> Going to have to use that line at Roto Hoops. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have much else either. Um, I'll just kind of run through a few of my notes. I, I think Pop somehow looked older in 2006 than he does now. His hair is like fiercely white at this point. He maybe has a little bit more of it, but, uh, you know, at, at best, really no difference between 06 and 2020. A few of the assistants for the Spurs. This was a, a star-studded coaching, uh, a coaching room for the San Antonio Spurs. They have Mike Budenholzer, Brett Brown, and PJ Carlissimo all on the bench with Coach Popovich. And uh, star-studded staff on the other side with Joe Prunty uh, right. talking into Avery Johnson's ear. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the man who single-handedly developed Giannis. In doing some research, I found and completely forgot this happened that Jason Terry was suspended for game six, which Dallas lost uh, after punching Michael Finley at the end of game five. <laughs> I don't remember the context. Apparently there was some sort of scrum around the end of the game, but former teammates getting into it. Um, I have a few notes just on like what was going on in the league at that time. Uh, James, I'll, I'll lead the yield. I should say yield the floor to you if you have any notes on this, but Steve Nash had just won his second MVP. Really sad time for the league. I mean, 05 was bad enough, and then to, to do it again in 06. Uh, somebody wrote in my notes here that LeBron should have won it. I don't know who wrote that. Uh, Chris Paul was the rookie of the year that season. He was one vote away from being unanimous. That vote went to Darren Williams. Luther Head also got some votes for some reason. KG did not make an All-NBA team this season. This was, you know, one of kind of right, right, in the middle of his peak, if not maybe a little towards the end. Uh, but the forward spots went to uh, LeBron and Dirk were first team. Duncan and Elton Brand were second team. 
and Carmelo Anthony and Sean Marion were the third team forwards. So I was very surprised to see KG left off. And the final and probably most important note, this was absolute peak Gilbert Arenas. Mm-hmm. 29.3 points per game this season. He had one more good year in 07, and then that was pretty much it for him. Did he make a what, – what all-NBA team was, was Gilbert? He made the Whalen first team, but he made the <laughs> official uh, third team. The third team wow. is actually pretty yeah. legendary. You have Gilbert Arenas, Allen Iverson, Carmelo Anthony, Sean Marion, Yao Ming. Yeah, a real who's who. <laughs> yeah, well, even the second team is is a little sketchy. Like you have Chauncey Billups, Dwayne Wade, Elton Brand, Tim Duncan, Ben Wallace. So you got Elton Brand playing the three, I guess. <laughs> well, that that was the that was like Elton Brand's best year, right? Yeah, and that was, was the year that the Clippers came out of nowhere to get to the second yeah. round, I think. Yeah, man. I mean, tough to imagine that six forwards deserve to spot over KG. Uh, you know, maybe take uh, maybe take Carmelo or Sean Marion off or something. But um, we don't need to relitigate the the uh, Steve Nash MVP awards. Um, you know, probably you so. his most. His most deserving season was probably 06, 07. So you should feel fortunate that he was only a two-time champ. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Dirk won it in 07. Uh, wait, you think you think Nash had a better year than Dirk that year? No, I'm saying Nash's best year was probably. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, that's wow. probably true. If I'm, if I'm remembering correctly. I, I, the 05 one, I, like you said, I don't, I don't mean to relitigate this, but... You can't win the MVP averaging 15 and 11. I'm sorry. You just can't. Yeah, we'll, we'll transfer. I mean, we, we can't go back in time and, and do this, but uh, we, we can just give them the 0607 one instead. Yeah, I'll look into like a change.org or a GoFundMe or something. <laughs> All right, you guys have anything else? Did, did you have any thoughts, either of you, on that, that Heat team that won the finals this year? Not really. I, I mean, I, I certainly remember it. This was well within my my range of NBA consciousness. I, I mean, the big deal obviously was Shaq. This was his second year in Miami. I, I do think that Heat team was probably a little bit more loaded, at least with like recognizable names than people would remember. Yeah, you kind of just think it's like Shaq and Wade. Those are the two guys you think of. But I mean, they had White Chocolate, Jason Williams. You had like Udonis Haslam when he was actually pretty good. Started 80 games for that team. Uh, James Posey, you had very old Gary Payton, you had Antoine Walker still in his prime at age 29, um, you know, Jason Capono kind of functioning as the Kyle Korver, uh, three-point shooting specialist for that team. I don't know. I don't remember it being as much of a robbery as it's talked about now. Um, you know, watching it live, it was a parade, the free throw line certainly for Dwayne Wade, but like, I don't remember coming away from that series feeling like I had been cheated as a fan watching the finals. Did, did you feel that way? I think I kind of did. Um, I just, it seemed, it, it did seem like uh, just a nonstop whistle for, for Wade in that series. I, the thing that I find most interesting is that they had the, they had the fifth best record in the league that year and won the finals. And I'm trying to think of, teams since then that have had had a fifth best record or, or worse and won the finals or maybe even 
52 wins or worse and won the finals like that mm-hmm. just almost never happens i mean that that would be like if the nuggets won the finals this year or something like that right um, so i that that part of it is fascinating to me um i think the spurs and mavericks were obviously better teams to me than than that miami heat team but um I think just coming out of the West was such a gauntlet for the Mavs. You know, not only do you have to beat that 63-win Spurs team in the second round in seven games, but then you have to beat that 54-win Suns team in six games. Yeah, you got to go beat the, the MVP. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they did have to beat the MVP. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I guess, I mean, I, it, it is what it is, but I... I think the Mavs were the better team, just like the Heat were probably the better team in 2011. Definitely. I think that's fair. I think they, they kind of got each other back uh, for that one in, in 2011. The only other thing I have that we haven't touched on is Nick Van Exel had no oh, idea yeah. that he finished out for the Spurs. and was actually like a reasonably important piece for them. He played in 65 games, averaged over 15 minutes a game, uh, gave him 36% from the field, uh, a very unspurs like player. So I was kind of surprised that's where he finished his career. Yeah, I love I love the idea of late career Nick Van Exel just being kind of your your savvy vet backup point guard. His real name, by the way, his, his birth name is Nicky, N I C K E Y. I uh my my father-in-law is really tight with Nick Van Exel and he used to come over for like Christmas and stuff like that. What? Um, <laughs> You've never once mentioned this. Would he be willing to come over for, say, a Rotowire NBA podcast? I I should try to get him to go to Roto Hoops. <laughs> I mean, I, he's 48, so at this point, he, I mean, I'm sure he'd be a little bit better than us, but he'd probably fit right in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, that's a great spot to end this. Thanks for doing this, guys. Um, I know baseball is starting to heat up for you, James. You had the draft last week. Um, and as we were recording it, do we have some good news on the baseball front? I'm looking at this John Heyman tweet and it looks like things are finally moving in the right direction. Yeah. I mean, Heyman's an idiot, but, um, yeah, seems, seems that way. Uh, yeah. Well, it looks like Jeff Passan kind of threw some water on that in the last 15 minutes anyway, but <laughs> yeah. well, we'll, we'll be praying for it. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. 
That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.